I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I watched Death on the Nile, and I want to talk about it. But first, let me just get this out of the way. I'm not going to talk about the thing that everybody's talking about um, that happened at the Oscars, or at least not in the way that you think. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the Oscars were this Sunday, and, and in case you were, you know, taking a social media hi- um, hiatus, the Oscars were this Sunday, and a thing happened. A bunch of people were awarded, um, but all anything, the only thing, or at least the, the main thing that everyone was talking about was the big thing that happened at um, the Oscars. Um, and two things that I want to talk about. So the first thing is Samuel L. Ja- Samuel L. Jackson won um, an Oscar. I don't remember for, for what, but he won. Um, Quest Love and his people won for Summer of Soul, which that I, I reviewed it. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, I reviewed Summer of Soul and I praised that um, series and largely spent a lot of time talking about, you know, breaking it down like I normally do, but then also kind of, I don't remember if I was thinking, I compared it in any way to some of the festivals that I had um, participated in. But um, if I didn't, I'll do it now. The reason why I just thought that that doc was just so great is because, you know, everybody was talking about Woodstock and, you know, how revolutionary that was and, and, you know, all the myths that were surrounding it, the people who allegedly died at Woodstock and people that were that allegedly um, were gave birth at Woodstock, or at least were born at Woodstock, conceived at Woodstock, all of that stuff. And, you know, the myths and legends that were surrounding it and all the stars that were there, and the fact that it was recreated, um, what was it, Woodstock 2000 or something like that, and it was a bunch of... From what I remember... I think I was a preteen. Either I was a teen or a preteen when it was um like an early teen or a preteen when it was um recreated. And I remember it being a muddy mess, just like the first one was excuse me, a muddy mess. And I actually think um I don't remember actually let me not let me not start talking about um what I think happened there. I just don't remember people well, let me let me say it this way. I remember watching like MTV and reading what was the music magazine that I ever got? Oh, occasionally, I don't even know how this happened, but I remember getting a Rolling Stone magazine and I don't remember I don't remember why I got it. Like the subscription was in my name and I was a child. And I don't remember it, for those of you who are my, who are in who are around my age, Y'all remember how we used to get those CDs? We were part of that CD club, and we used to get CDs all the time. Well, I got CDs. I forgot who the, who did we get the CDs from. I can't remember who the CD club was from, 
or like how we got involved with the CD club. And I just remember getting a bunch of somehow signing up to get a bunch of CDs. And I got a bunch of CDs. I have no money for real, but with just a few dollars, I was able to sign up and be a part of the um, CD club. And however I got into that CD club is the exact same way that I got Rolling Stone magazines. I kept, I stayed having Rolling Stone magazines and other um, source. I remember getting source. Um, there was a bunch of like music magazines. There was another one, but Rolling Stone, I remember distinctly getting. And I remember that magazine talking about that Woodstock um, and like the the updated version of the Woodstock Festival. And I just remember looking at it and thinking, y'all are dirty and gross. But like then Coachella, I don't know if if Woodstock, if the updated version of the Woodstock um, Festival was like the predecessor to Coachella. I don't remember. I've never been to Coachella. I don't even remember paying attention to Coachella until a couple of years before um, Beyonce actually did it, you know, did homecoming from there. Like, I don't remember. I had one friend, my, my homegirl mine, she went to Coachella one time that I remember. Um, Yes, I don't know how long Coachella was happening. But anyway, she was just thinking of fairs and fest or thinking of festivals, music fests, and thinking about how Summer of Soul. So so Woodstock was super famous and everybody was talking about it. And Woodstock was like a weekend or something like that. Summer of Soul was weekends in that summer, on that in that particular summer in um, the 70s. Was it 60s or 70s? Can't call it. It was, it was the 70s. And it just drew so many crowds of black folk, black and brown folks, largely because it was a festival catering to black and brown folks. And of course, while it was on the nightly news in New York, um, and it wasn't called the Summer of Soul, it was called the Harlem Harlem Fest. Um, Harlem Festival, something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, I'm, I'm messing it up, but Harlem Fest. Let's just call it Harlem Fest. Um, catering to black and brown folks. And the acts that were attracted and the fact that they, for every Saturday, <clears throat> every Saturday and Sunday in the summer, throughout the summer, you kept attracting those large crowds Phenomenal, just phenomenal. And then I think the thing that got me watching the documentary was the pure bliss that you saw on the faces of the performers and the people who were just attendees at the conference or at the festival who were interviewed for the doc. You could see the just sheer joy and euphoria that would come over their face when they would either A, see footage of themselves at the festival or a, an act they remember seeing, or them, them being on stage and, and the tears and the emotion that would kind of bubble up to the surface. And I don't think I've ever felt like that. Like, I don't think I've ever attended a festival that would make me feel the way that some of those performers and some of those attendees felt 
or the, the, the joy that was dredged up, those memories created for them, even decades later, right? And, and you know, the fifth dimension, um, some of the members, um, Marilyn McCoo and her husband, shout out to Marilyn McCoo, my sorrow. Um, but they were interviewed talking about how the Harlem Fest was one of the one of the first opportunities they had to be a, a black act that was doing music that many considered to be lily white or at the very least alternative. Well, they didn't have the language for alternative. So you you they were considered to be kind of like sellouts a little bit because they weren't doing they weren't doing like blues and soul they were doing they were putting their blues and soul backgrounds into what was probably considered at the time and probably is considered today folk music which was considered to be largely a uh, uh, something that white people did right and so one of the reasons they they were they were invited to participate um, in the, the Harlem Fest and they did, obviously they did some of their popular songs, but um, uh, they did Aquarius and Let the Sun Shine, which were two songs that they were covering from, um, what was that, the, the musical Hair? But you already know when you put some, when you put, when you, when you add some black people, especially black people who were raised in the church and you take those musicians, take those singers, and you begin to have them sing that song that, you know, I'm not taking anything away from the creators of Hair and, you know, the emotion that they were evoking in the show. But like, it's a lo- it hits a little different when you have, a, when you have people who are, have a, a Black Baptist church choir and, and just church background. There's a spirituality that's added to the song that you probably don't get. And let's be for real, you don't get in any other version. You know what I mean? Unless you're talking about something that's culturally rooted. And singing the way that we sing in the Black Baptist Church is culturally a part of us because largely it extends outside of the religious space. There's a whole conversation to be had about there's a whole conversation to be had about black music um, and its origins all the way, the roots of the black, black music and its origins all the way back to um, the African continent. But I'm not going to take it all the way back there. I'm just saying there was something that Fifth Dimension did when they got a hold to um, Aquarius and Let the Sun Shine. And so that was one of the songs that were highlighted in the series and the Marilyn McCoo and her husband. Um, and it's so funny. I cannot remember his name. I remember hers, but not his, even though he was the leader of the fifth dimension, but Google him, you can figure it out. Um, but they were talking about how they were called Oreos and not really accept or like they had some pushback in uh, from some in the black community telling them that they were doing white people music. They were whitewashed. But also, people were getting what they were doing, doing something different. They didn't have to do the doo-wop. They didn't, you know what I mean? They didn't have to be a doo-wop band. They didn't have to um, 
sang, you know, soul ballads and, you know what I mean? Um, you could express yourself, they could express their talent in a different way in music. And, you know, here we are talking about different genres of black music and recognizing that, that you know, we can get down in many different ways, you know, kind of the predecessor to, well, yeah, we, we don't have to be blues. We don't have to be jazz. We don't have to be a uh, uh, gospel choir type singing. We can, we can do this. They weren't calling it a hippie thing. We would call it a hippie thing, but like folk music, we can do folk music, but in our way that could resonate with you. And that was some, something that they were talking about, um, Marilyn and her husband, about the fifth dimension and what they were thinking. And anyway, as they were watching themselves, I believe in the documentary, as they were watching themselves perform the, the, the song that I keep talking about, which was the most popular at the time, which was Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine, which you have heard a jillion times in nostalgic movies that are that are set in the 70s. If there's any connection at all to the summer of love and all of that stuff, you heard that that version, their version, the fifth dimension version of that song. Um, even if you haven't heard, uh, even if you haven't seen the show uh, Hairspray. No, it's not Hairspray, but um, um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Is that, did I just tell the name of the play? It, I think it's, the, it's from Jesus Christ Superstar, I believe. Or is it Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat? One of them. I can't remember. Google it. Anyway. Um, but you've heard the song before, and nine times out of ten, you've heard the Fifth Dimension version of it. So anyway, you had Marilyn McCoo and her husband um, talking about watching a clip of them doing that sh- that performance at Harlem Fest, and you saw tears well up in both their eyes, and remarking that this was the first time where they felt accepted, like truly accepted for doing this different thing that they they were doing as black people, but being accepted for doing it by black people. And then you see, while she's talking about that, you see them on the stage, and then you pan out into the into the crowd, and you see people getting into it, like a, a bunch of folks into it, you know, and. That was a powerful moment. And again, I say, I don't think I've ever, I don't know. It like, I think the closest I've ever come. And, and again, I'm the reason why I'm, I'm trying to think back on the music festivals that I've been to to see if it ever evoked, not the, the, not the emotion of some musicians who were fr- finally felt accepted by their community, but the emotion of folks who were teenagers and kids who were a part of that summer festival and looked back on it so fondly and like talked about it like there was nothing else that they've ever been to. Nothing like it before, nothing like it since. Gave them such pride about being who they were, living where they were, despite everything that was going on. Um, that's, that, you know, that's kind of where I'm, uh, I'm thinking. I'm like, have I ever been to in my adult life? Because I really didn't go to fairs. I really didn't go to festivals like that until I became older. And let's be for real, I really didn't start going to music fests until after college. Like I went to state fairs, but like that's not the vibe. The vibe of state fairs is very much not that. If anything, state fairs in the United States, the version of state fairs is about selling product and eating a lot and seeing different farming equipment and hearing a few 
musical acts, you know what I mean? And getting on rides and stuff. It's kind of like a carnival atmosphere. But like, um, like a music fest, I've never been to a music fest until after. I had never been to a music fest until after I graduated college. And the first music fest I think I ever went to was Artscape. Mm, not Artscape. That's not a music fest. That's a cultural, that's an art fest. Um, but let me put a pin in Artscape. Um, let me come back to that. I think the first music fest I ever went to was Rock the Bells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was Rock the Bells. And I don't know when all the music fests popped up. Uh, South by Southwest, Coachella, like I said, I don't remember when that began. Um, there was one in Tennessee whose name I cannot remember. Um, I told you about the Woodstock thing that actually didn't turn out to be like a, a, a annual thing. But so Rock the Bells, which is the first one that I went to. And then the second one that I went to was the Roots Picnic. And I got to be honest with you. The two festivals that I've ever been to that get me close to feeling a little bit of, of the feeling that some of these um, attendees of the Harlem um, Cultural Festival, I think that's what it was called, the Harlem Cultural Festival. That's what it was called, Harlem Cultural Festival. Um, is not Rock the Bells, although Rock the Bells did make me, it, it was like a great way to get into being around musical acts that you knew from the 90s and some of, uh, you know, knew from the 90s and early 2000s. Well, late, the early 90s and the late 90s. Um, I forgot even who was a part of Rock the Bells, like who put that thing on. Was it? I can't remember. But Google Rock the Bells. You'll know who the promoters of that thing was, who the creators of that that festival were. Um, I remember feeling. I remember when I would go to that festival that it would be giving artists that I remember that were like underground or got fame, but they were still trying to be true to who they were, like um, neo soul artists or at the time, what we would consider to be um, conscious rappers, whoever the promoters of that, not the promoters, but the originators of that festival, the the creators of that festival, they really tried to put those artists on and give them an opportunity to be heard again by whole new generations. And so, you know, they would come here to the Meriwether, um, Meriwether, y'all in the Baltimore area, you know what I'm talking about, the Meriwether Amphitheater. Um, out in Columbia, at Columbia, Maryland. And, um, you know, it was cool. I still very much felt like I was at a music, a music uh, festival and it was cool and everything. But, you know, I I don't think it gave me, none of it. I I think seeing some of the artists, like I remember seeing Busta Rhymes with his problematic self. I remember being in the front, right at the gate, Literally, I was so close that the only thing that separated me and everybody that was at the fence with me and Buster Rhymes was that little bitty causeway space that you have to have for emergencies between the stage and the um, the fence, like the little bear. It wasn't even a fence. It's like those those little gates um, that are about tummy high, depending on how high, how tall you are. They're about tummy high. Um, And. 
you know, for photographers to be there and then also emergency personnel should they have to pull somebody out. And security were there too. And anyway, I distinctly remember me and this other girl. And of course it was tight. We packed in there like sardines pre-COVID. Um, and it was hot and it was tight. And of course, Buster Rhymes was one of the closing acts. And he was just rapidly rap, 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 rap. And I think this was his first time being at Coachella. I mean, not Coachella, but um, Rock the Bells. And I, at the time, I was a huge Busta Rhymes fan. I res- He resonated with me. Um, I never considered him to be conscious, but I considered a conscious rapper, but I considered him to be different than all the other rappers that were trying to be gangster rappers or anything like that. He's just weird to me. Um, now, my, right, if y'all are younger, you know Busta Rhymes to be somebody different now, like an old dad, problematic dad now. But like when he was younger, he was weird. He was like a weird rapper and that was cool. He had these big old long locks, big old dreads. Like I know there's people are trying to reclaim the term dread. Um, There's conversation about that. And some people still don't want to call them dreads. They call them locks. I confess that I call my hair locks, not dreads, because that was what I was taught. How how to reference my hair um, from um, this woman... I spent time with in Syracuse when I was doing my Vista internship there. Um, but yeah, he had these big disrespectful dreads and he was just weird, all in your face weird. Um, but it was cool and that was that was awesome to me. And so I just devoured his songs. Um, and so I'm here, I am at my first, I think it was my first Rock the Bells. And he's rabbity rap, 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 rapping. And I'm rapping along with him. And there's a uh, black girl that was right next to me. And she was rabbity rap, rap, rapping right along with him. And we connected and we started rapping to each other, which was the, it was the funniest, purest thing ever. But like, we stopped paying attention to Busta. We started rapping to each other and we were like, you know, you know how, you know how we do get excited. And then we just like get giddy and stuff like that. And we started jumping and just, we were I don't even think my feet touched the ground. I was so elated. I don't even remember where mine was because these days, that when I was going back to back when I was going to fairs and festivals, I always went with homegirl mine because that's my fairs and festival homie. Like that's that's we we do this we do this because fairs and festivals. See, you hear me getting excited, and I'm this is all because uh, Summer of Soul won the Oscar, which it should have won the Oscar because man, you got to document stuff like this. Euphoric moments like this where you're bringing communities together, like you don't always get a camera there to capture that moment. And sometimes it's not necessary. Like the camera kind of ruins it for you. But like when you have an opportunity to have a camera and it's not obtrusive and you can document, you're able to document a slice of life, a slice of a community where they're able to commune with each other and just vibe around music or that art. That is a sight to behold. And me remarking... I even even I'm getting excited about remarking how I felt about um, about my performance, um, the performance that I was witnessing at um, Rock the Bells with Busta Rhymes. Like he was, he got so hyped. He was looking at us. There was a couple of other music heads that were just going hard too. He threw water on all. He threw water on me and my homegirl because he was like, "Y'all are y'all are getting me hype. Y'all are like, shoot, I should be doing this more often." I got a bunch of songs. I'm finna come back for real. Cause like, I, one of the things that I remember is that musicians love it when people in the front can interact, like they're true fans who can interact with their music. Because sometimes it's the richity, rich, rich, rich people who get all the way in the front, and then they don't know none of their songs at all. They're just there. You know what I mean? And so anyway, um, 
I remember seeing a tribe called Quest. I, so Busta Rhymes was there. I can't remember if this was the same year, but Busta Rhymes, I remember going to um, Rock the Bells and seeing Busta Rhymes and just losing it and having so much fun. Um, most Def and Talib Kweli were there, but Most Def was doing that one thing where he wasn't, it was middle of the summer, it was August. Dude came out in a poncho, like like a like a traditional traditional poncho that you would see uh, around someone in the highlands, in the mountains, um, in Mexico. Like it was like that thick poncho, not the little Americanized, like uh, culturally appropriated poncho, but like that thick poncho with a doggone hat in the middle of the. It was August. I knew he was burning up, but he wanted to he wanted to get his fit off, I guess. Anyway, but like he did not perform very long, so that wasn't endearing. But Tribe Called Quest, when every, when Fife Dog, Fife, it, it, and unfortunately, I think this was the Tribe, I think this was one of the performances where they fought immediately after. I think they fought immediately after, but it was the whole, it was all, it was Tribe Called Quest. And... It was, I, I levitated. I feel like I levitated because I had so much fun because that was another band that really had left an indelible mark on me. Because again, that CD club, through that CD club, I got Busta Rhymes CDs. I got Tribe Called Quest CDs. I got Rue CDs um, and some other people. I think um, Jimi Hendrix, um, Jimi Hendrix, Ghetto Boys. Some of y'all don't know nothing about the Ghetto Boys. Please look them up. Bushwick Bill, Scarface and Bushwick Bill. Come on, come on. Some of y'all don't know what the heck I'm talking about, but you need to get into it. Um, Tech Nine, which is not everybody's taste, but Google him too if you don't know who you're talking about. Um, actually, you should probably know who, you, who Tech Nine is. Anyway, I'm getting off. I'm getting sidetracked, but you should know who Tech Nine is because Tech Nine is the guy that uh, put the rock on that <laughs> that song where he was rapidly rap rap rapid, but like not in a good way, and like everybody was making fun of him. Tech Nine was Tech Nine. Thank Tech Nine for that. Um, rapper Tech Nine from Kansas City. Thank, thank, thank him for that. Um, anyway, um, but yeah. So even though I had, I have moments where I was like euphoric and had so much fun at um, Rock the Bells. I did. It didn't. The whole thing, like the whole time, didn't give me that euphoric moment. But I will say, what has come close to giving me that euphoric moment that is described in some of the concert goers or the attendees and some of the performers of uh, the Harlem River Fest that is identified in that um, Summer of Soul doc that won their Oscar. Um, the closest I get was is, is attending Artscape, attending Artscape and attending um, the Roots Picnic. Just because there was a, there's a family atmosphere there. I, and, and you Baltimore native, hold on. I never attended the Stone Soul Picnic. I can't speak on the Stone Soul Picnic. I never attended. Don't come for me. I never attended. I, I'm mad that I wasn't able to attend. When I moved here, I think I missed one of the last iterations of Stone Soul Picnic. And then it was um, Af- um, not Afropunk, but although I did go to Afropunk, Afropunk was cool, but it didn't really give me that family nostalgic vibe. It was just blackity black, which was fine for me. Like, I loved it. But um, uh, what was the... African-American festival, the African-American festival that happens in July here in Baltimore. That's cool. Um, and I, I don't know if that replaced Stone Soul Picnic or not, but that was cool, but it didn't really give me the the family vibe. You know what I mean? Like this, we're in a part of a, of a collection 
a collective and a family vibes. But Rock the um, Rock the Bells came close. Roots Picnic came even closer just because of the nature of the, the picnic. We were, it was in an intimate space <clears throat> out on the pier um, in Philly. And it just felt so intimate and so cool. Now, I know it's since changed over the years. So I don't know what it became pre-pandemic. But I know when I first started going to um, the Roots Picnic, it replaced Rock the Bells for me because it was so... And the vibe was so intimate, like you felt like only true music heads were there, only true, only people who truly understood or could appreciate what the roots were trying to do were there. That's what it felt like to me anyway. And that felt that was very hipsterish of me. But that's how I felt at the time. The other thing was Artscape. And I, I, rem, I maintain that it still feels this way. When I first went when I'm from the time I went to my first Artscape was which was in 2008, right up until 2019 it felt like it felt like nothing could ever recreate the vibes that are first off it's Baltimore so it's hard for you to recreate Baltimore vibes if you're not from Baltimore and that's not to say that if you're not from Miami or if you're not from Philly or or New York or you know Newark pick you know what I mean like you don't have your own vibes it's just when you're talking about Artscape and you recognize that Artscape is a uniquely Baltimore thing, even though there are art festivals, art and music festivals in every major city, the art that is in Baltimore is, we got the Peabody here. We've got the Peabody here. We've got, we've got, when I tell you we've got world-class musicians and artists that do residencies here, in the museums here, in the musical con- uh, con- conservatories here. Um, we've got a unique ability here to attract world-renowned artists from aclo- across the globe of all different genres. And they come here and they converge here and sometimes they stay. But they come here and they make up the music that is the the gumbo. And I guess I'm using the term gumbo. Don't come for me, folks from the South, especially Louisiana. But like this eclectic mix of crab cake. How about that? Fine. That is Baltimore art. And when I tell you there are so many different art museums across this tiny city, there are so many different galleries across this tiny city, so many different. When I tell you there's so many different theaters packed into this, I keep saying it's a tiny city because it's a whole bunch of people packed into a small square, um, square space. Baltimore itself as a city is not that big, but there's a lot of people packed here. And I know all the stuff that you hear about Baltimore and, and blah, 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 blah. But if you've never been here, please, please save your judgment until you actually get here. Because what I tell you, and I don't know even if the the... Artscape is going to return the way I remember it for a little while. But baby, when I tell you it's a weekend full of just sheer bliss, there's something, literally something for everybody. There's a vibe here. They literally shut down a portion. I've talked about this before, but they shut down a portion of Charles Street from North Avenue all the way down to, is it Chase? I don't think they go that far. Maybe it's close. It's just right before Chase. And it's right by Penn Station. And they have some of the most weird, when I tell you there's some weird stuff happening. It's weird, you guys. The, and, and you can thank the American Visionary Art Museum for, for keeping it weird. Um, but it, it, 
that atmosphere, it, it's a multicultural, obviously, but Baltimore is a predominantly black city, black and brown city. But it's also multicultural. But like it's it's so cool and fun to see black and brown folks coming out having fun. And then just we just hear with like world renowned artists, you will literally walk right past some world renowned artists and you won't even know it because we're just here. Everybody be cool. It's like a everybody be cool vibe. Get you something to drink, get you something to eat, sit down, enjoy whoever's on stage at the far end over by North and Charles stage. Go see, go to the DJ that's over there by UB, um, the the Maryland State Police Training Center now because it used to be uh, the University of Baltimore Law uh, um, building, but now the particular building where they have, well, actually, no, this is probably still the University of Maryland Law Center, um, one of their buildings, but... um, yeah, you know, go go down to that end and see this particular DJ who I do not remember, but there's always a DJ set happening. And there's this one particular DJ that gets on a lift and he's literally DJing on a lift. And like as part, and I think this is actually dangerous, but like as, as part of his set, he like rises and, and, and lowers on that, that set. And it's usually, he usually has it, sorry, while he's DJing, he's like moving and shaking and having the mechanical lifter rise up and down. And it feels very unsafe, feels like it could tip, but it never actually does um, while he's moving and grooving. But like, I remember one time there was a Constellation and I think actually because Constellation Energy had paid for it and they literally had the planets create this club on the street because it's still Charles Street. This whole festival happens. They shut down this whole portion of Charles Street, a major artery in Baltimore City. And you, you know, you have concerts at the amphitheater, which is just off Charles Street over by on the other side of UB. You have things happening up by the Lyric. Um, um, is that the Opera House? The, the Lyric. Google the Lyric. You know what I'm talking about. Um, over by, um, oh, you know who else keeps it weird? So the American Visionary Art Museum keeps it weird, but then also Micah keeps it weird because I think Micah is a huge sponsor of Art Fest because Micah is one of the largest and most prestigious art um, colleges in the country. Um, perhaps it's pretty. It's a pretty big deal. Um, what's that girl? That what's the woman that created Girls? The woman that cre- that was the creator of Girls, who is problematic. She went to Micah. There's a bunch of people that went to Micah, but she is one of the, they got her picture up um, because she's one of the latest big time people that came out of Micah. Um, I can't remember her name, but you know who I'm talking about. The lady that, that created Girls, that HBO show Girls, her. Can't call her name, but she went to Micah. Anyway, um, she graduated from Micah. I don't think she just went there. She graduated from Micah. Um... Anyway, but so they're another big part of the reason why it's the artscape is weird. Um, I think Morgan has a hand in it, too. Um, anyway, it's just I think that festival is the closest. Artscape is the closest I've ever come to feeling the, the, the emotion that um, that was conveyed in that documentary about the people who performed and uh, or participated in that festival. And I did not intend to spend 20 minutes talking about <laughs> talking about Summer of Soul and then music festivals, but I think I'm just ready for Music Fest to begin. Um, But anyway, in reference to that thing that happened at the Oscars, I think the other thing that I just want to mention, you know what, I'm not even going to mention it because everybody has talked about it at nauseum. Just 
Samuel L. Jackson won an Oscar. Will Smith, as you know, won an Oscar. Um, and Summer of Soul and Quest won an Oscar. Summer of Soul took away an Oscar for, or got an Oscar for um, Quest Love, which is pretty awesome. And other people won too, and it's pretty great. So yeah, let's not lose sight of those things. Let's not lose sight of that. Also, um, Denzel Washington is the GOAT. Like, he all right with me. I know he can be problematic for a lot of people. He's, you know, he that anyway, he, he's, he got a place in my heart until I find out something else. But anyway, um, so for the thing that I want to talk about today, let me just give you the quick rundown. So it took me a minute to try to find what I wanted to watch. And when I finally stumbled upon, first off, I didn't even realize that um, Death on the Nile was coming to HBO Max. I must have missed it, um, as I often do for the release of these these movies. But um, I remember seeing the promo, early promo for Death on the Nile. And I remember thinking, going, we got three people here that have that range in their level of being problematic. It's, um, you got, um, Letitia Wright, who people tried, people wrote off because of her conspiracy, conspiracy, COVID conspiracies was COVID conspiracies that she was peddling. And I, I, in truth, I don't exactly know the wild stuff that she was saying, but it was wild enough for people to be like, well, guess we won't have her in uh, Black Panther too. Um, I remember Army Hammer is in it, which is wildly like woof. Remember his weird, that weird thing that came up about his text messages to like an escort or an escort where he wanted like to do weird stuff with her, like very far out there stuff. Google it. If you haven't heard of Army Hammer and, the, and his scandal, I'll Google it, Google it, baby. It'll tell you everything you need to know about it. Um, and I think it got so bad that I think they they either suspended him or put him out of the Screen Actors Guild because of like I don't know if he was abusing women too in in trying to achieve higher heights of stimulation. I don't know, but Google it. You'll learn more about that. Um, and so I think this movie came out before this hit the fan. Like I think this was his last film before that hit the fan. And then you've got um, Gal Gadot, who many people were frustrated about with her because something about her having this film that she was producing, I think, um, about an Egyptian ruler, a woman ruler. It was either Nefertiti or it was Cleopatra. But um, anyway, she ended up wanting, ended up casting herself as this Egyptian ruler. And that put up a lot of people in the black diaspora up in arms because they were like, you couldn't find an Egyptian actress. You could not find it. And you know, Gal Gadot is um, Israeli. And they're like, girl, you don't even look like Cleopatra. You whitewashing Cleopatra again. And haven't we been through this enough? Haven't we been here enough where we've had countless white women um, portray um, Cleopatra, can we not whitewash, get you somebody that is from Egypt, get you an Egyptian actress that is uh, part of the diaspora? Um, and I don't even think, I don't even know what became of that project. I don't know if it was um, killed like that. Remember when Scarlett Johansson wanted to play a trans woman and people got mad at her because, duh, why would you, you could simply just hire a trans woman to play the role. And I think she just deaded the entire 
she deaded the entire project because she couldn't play it. Or that's how it, that's how it kind of felt. Like she, she deaded the entire project because she was mad instead of getting work for a trans actress, but whatever. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it made me feel because I, I don't know. I don't know if, if the project that uh, Gal Gadot was working on ever saw the light of day, but I just remember that being a problem. So anyway, you've got these, <laughs> I don't even know the other actors and, and whether or not they were, are problematic in any, any shape or form. But I remember thinking that, but then I also remember thinking that um, Masterpiece Theater, PBS's Masterpiece Theater always has a place in my heart. First off, because PBS has a place in my heart. But then Masterpiece Theater, even though I never really got through a whole presentation on Masterpiece Theater, I would always either fall asleep or get bored because it was some heavy subject matter and a little bit slow for my taste. But I was a child when I was watching Masterpiece Theater. But I, it still has a place in my heart. And I remember Poirot was one of the, this French detective was one of those shows that got played a lot. And I remember him having dark hair with this big old fat dark mustache. Um, and I remember him being short. And I remember him being kind of like the French version of Matlock. And that's the best way I could describe it. Now, I probably, somebody who is a Poirot fan, fan is probably like clutching their pearls right now. But that's what was... That was how I could, that's how I could um, process the character in my mind. And so anyway, I wanted to see this film because I wanted to see what I had been missing about Poirot or a version of Poirot, the detective, the world-renowned detective. And so that's why I ended up watching this this movie. But I got to be honest with you, it ended in a way that I did not expect. Totally. I didn't totally expect it to end this way. Um, and it was actually not bad, although I do have some thoughts. Um, so in the next segment, I'll talk all about the, the show Murder on the Nile. Um, I will go into the particulars as I, as I typically do the rest of the stars who played in it. Um, and then go over the, the, the movie itself. So there's going to be some spoilers. So if you're not interested in hearing spoilers, just pause this, watch the movie and come back to this later. But if you don't care, keep on listening. All right. So in the second and the next segment, it's all about um, murder on the Nile. All right, let's get into it. Okay. so death on the Nile. And I should have looked this up, but it was released. February 11th of 2022, but this thing has been in the can for a minute. Um, I distinctly remember that. <clears throat> but so anyhow, it was released February 11th, 2022. Um, director was Kenneth Brana, who actually plays Poirot. And, and I want to make a correction. Um, Poirot, um, Hercule Poirot is actually Belgian. He just speaks French. Um, but I always... I always remembered him to be, I recognized him to be a French detective, but he's actually not a French detective. Um, he's from Belgium. He's Belgian and he speaks French. Anyway, so, but Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh is the director of this thing and he also plays Hercule Poirot. Um, I will say right off the bat, this thing is beautifully shot, but let me, let me, I'll, I'll circle back around to that. It's adapted from Death on the Nile, the, um, that's, Poirot Sulnilo. Uh, 
it's a book. A book that features Death on the Nile is a book that features the Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. The action takes place in Egypt, mostly on the Nile River. Um, and the writer of the Poirot books or the books that include Hercule Poirot is Agatha Christie. That's why. That's why. Because, listen, a masterpiece theater, stay having Agatha Christie uh, films and or adaptations of Ag- Agatha Christie films. That's why. So that's why Masterpiece Theater played it all the time. Also, um, I think Agatha Christie, there was an adaptation of Agatha Christie's novel, two novels that I watched. The one, oh, I'm finna turn. Anyway, I've talked about them on this show before. Um, But anyway, I am, guess I'm a fan of Agatha Christie. Um, Or at least the film adaptations of um, her novels and stuff. Anyhow, directed by... uh, I don't know what the heck happened, but it stopped again. So let me just pick up where I think it stopped recording before I moved on. But it's, I was talking about who the thing starred. So Kenneth Branagh um, plays Hercule Poirot. Um, Army Hammer plays, uh, Hercule Poirot is the, the gray detective um, who we are introduced to in the very beginning of the film because it's his film, really. Army Hammer plays Simon Doyle, who is a love interest. He's a, yeah, yeah, I was about to say ingenue. Can you, can you associate a song, uh, the phrase ingenue to a dude? Probably. I don't know. Anyway, he's like the love interest, the hot toy in this movie to Gal Gadot, who plays Lynette Ridgway, who's a super rich um, heiress who falls in love with Simon Doyle in a very scandalous way. We'll come back to that. Um, Annette Benning, who I haven't seen in a minute, um, plays Euphemia, who is the mother of Book, who plays, who's played by Tom Bateman, who is the hot guy in that moody romance novel that's like a sci-fi mystery uh, behind her eyes. He's like the doctor with that thick old Scottish accent. Yeah, that's him. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like drooling over because he was fine. But um, yeah, he played, he played that. Uh, that uh, Scottish doctor in that in that um, in that show, but um, or no, he's like Scottish or I, I can't call it. I, I forgive me if I've gotten the accent wrong and the country where he's from uh, wrong. But anyway, he played him in that show, and then of course he's he shaved his beard though. Like he, I think he had a beard there. It was like really broody and moody and stuff in um, that film, and everybody drooled over that but like he shaved his beard here and he's a little aloof here and I think him as I think I like him as an actor when he's moody because it feels sexier but you know he looked kind of weird without his beard so he should probably put that thing back on um because when you google uh Tom Bateman he looks much better with a beard um anyway so but so is so Euphemia, played by Annette Benning, is his mom who has money. Book himself does not have money. So he's like a rich kid, you know, just out here living life who falls in love. He has a secret romance. And we find this out like midway in the film. And I'm kind of telling the story already, but falls in love with uh, Letitia Wright's character, Rosalie Otter. 
something anyway, but her, they call her Rosalie. Um, and yeah, so they're having like, and this is, mind you, this is set in like the forties, right? So I find it curious anyway, I'll talk about this in a minute, but anyway, so Letitia Wright, um, plays Rosalie, who is apparently a booking agent for, um, a booking agent for a, a blues artist named Simone Salome. Salome. I can't remember how they. I don't even remember her name in the thing. I think it's Salome. Um, but it's played by Sophia Okinedo, who is beautiful. Man, I love that woman. I love her acting because she plays. She plays a. And this is going to sound terrible, but the reason why I love her is because she plays weird, creepy characters well, like affected characters well. I don't know. I just like her. I like watching her performances. Anyway, um, but she, in this show, she's like a sex siren, blues artist that's all sweaty all the time. And they have her oily all the time, oily and sweaty all the time. But like, anyway, she's like, she's an artist. And they're doing this thing where they're like playing up the sexuality of this black artist. And it's not, I cannot hold this back. It's not missed on me that... This show is trying to play up sexiness, right? This movie is trying to play up sexiness, but like in, in playing up the sexiness of the women and the men that are in this, in this film, they're also doing this weird thing where they're sexualizing these black actresses, these black artists, these black people who are like secondary to pushing forward, to advancing the plot. They're like advancing the plot. And I, I think they're trying to be inclusive and trying to give, you know, people their shine and, and have their independence. Because there's a point where Rosalie is, is like Book professes his love for Rosalie and why he professes it is because she's fiercely independent and she's smart and she's just a better human than he is. And he loves her for that. And they're madly in love, but it, gets, it still feels like she's a little bit of a prop. But anyway, I still live the fact that Letitia problematic, but... Um, is in this portraying her, even though she doesn't really act her well. I'm more so loving the acting from Sophie uh, Okanito because I love her. Anyway, um, also Russell Brand is in here, which I, it's nice for me. It's nice to see. I've, I've, to be honest with you, I've been rooting for Russell Brand since he got divorced from Katy Perry because I remember him very publicly talking about his struggles with addiction. And prior to being married to um, uh, Katy Perry, he was always playing this wild character, this wild, tall, lanky, goofy character um, that was a little bit edgy, but like behind all of that was like some serious addiction that he had to deal with. And post his divorce, he like cleansed himself and really got himself on a great spiritual path. I think he's a Buddhist or something like this. But anyway, if you've never looked at his socials, and again, this is public persona, so you have no idea who he is to a person. But like his trans, the transformation that he made feels real to me. And I think he is not an extreme version of what sobriety looks like in a person who's like 180 their life and really wants to dig into spirituality. I, I simply believe that, that we humans are spiritual beings anyway, whether you choose to believe in a divine power or not. I think we are spiritual beings at, at our core. Um, and so however you express that spirituality is and then you're, you're living in your truth. You're living in the way that we're, we were designed according to how I believe. But I just I, his transformation, it's pretty typical because when you go through 
you know, you, you go through addiction and you come through it. You still recognize that it's going to be a part of you. It's going to be a part of your life for the rest of your life. Oftentimes people turn to a spirituality practice to help ground them and provide the order that they need in order to be able to every day stand up against the addicted the disease in many people, in many cases, people call it the disease of addiction that at any time, any trigger could cause their relapse, could be the cause of a relapse. And so anyway, I just, I just enjoy watching. I can't say that I watch all of his videos. So I don't know if he said a problematic thing in the world since he's transformed his life, but it was just something I was pretty proud of him to be so open and public about his transformation, especially following that very humiliating divorce from, from Katy Perry, which she wanted the divorce, but she made him file for divorce because of this weird Christian thing that she was trying to do. I don't really know, but like I was, when I learned that she asked for the divorce, but she made him publicly divorce her, that was so frustrating and cowardly, I thought. And I don't know, I think since I found that out and how manipulative that was, that was very manipulative. Um, I think I wanted to root for him because I can only imagine the turmoil that was going through. And then I think at the same time I learned about that, I also learned that he was dealing with addiction and had been for a while. Um, and then I began to root for him even more. So to see him acting in this film with these stars, which was pretty awesome. Now he had a smaller role as Dr. Ludwig um, and I don't remember the last name, but like it was an important role. Now, doctor, the thing about you need to know about Dr. Ludwig is that he was once betrothed to um, Lynette Ridgway, which is played by Gal Gadot. But Lynette dropped him like a bad habit when she runs into the sex siren that is Simon Doyle. OK, um, they have a scene in the I'm just going to keep talking about this thing, but they have a scene in the beginning, um, Lynette and Simon, where. <laughs> It's raunchy, and I don't think they intended for it to be raunchy, but this is kind of part of the, the thing that I was talking about, that they have Sophie's character, Salome, Salome playing um, this blues actress, this blues artist who's like bringing the blues to Egypt. You know what I mean? Bringing it on home, you know, to the continent and, and making all these white people dance because they were the only other people of color a part of the diaspora that were in the clubs that they were going to were the people who were serving the waiters. Cannot miss that. Um, even most of the most of the black and brown. This film is full of black and brown people, just full of them in the diaspora, baby. But their servants throughout this film is a bunch of servants with white people as the character, and then you got two black people. Well, two black people and a South Asian guy. So three people of color in the show, but they're like advancing the plot for these white people. It's wild to me. Like you cannot not like how you going to come so far, but still miss the mark by a country mile. Anyway, let me tell you the other black person while I'm here uh, or not the other black person, the other person of color. It's Ali Fazal who plays Andrew Kitsch Kitsch. See, I hate Google because it never tells you the whole it never tells you the whole um, name of the of the actor, uh, the character that the actor is playing. But anyway, he plays Andrew, who is the cousin of, and they go out of their way to say he's the cousin of Lynette, to to try to make it seem like, hey, I'm 
We got some brown on this tree. We got some brown on this tree. You know what I mean? And actually, hold on. Let me uh, click on Gal Gadot because Gal Gadot Vasano is an Israeli actress and model. But what is her? She look a little brown. Like a little brown. But I don't think she is. I just think she's. Yeah, she's Israeli. I don't think there's any other. No, she's super Israeli. I'm sorry, I'm reading this. No, she's super Israeli like there's no other. She's Jewish. Where does the brown come from, though? Because she's got a little bit of a brown to her. I don't know. Maybe that she. Maybe she just tans. I don't know. Anyway, um, but no, they in the show, though, they make it. They make they make a big deal about the fact that that's her cousin. Uh, Andrew is her cousin. And Ali Fazal, like, um, is he South Asian? I said he's South Asian, but that doesn't mean he is. He's an English actor uh, appearing in the American television miniseries Bollywood Hero. Yeah, he's um, he was born in India. So he's a Daisy. What do they call it? Daisy. He's a Daisy um, actor, but he's Brit- he's a he's a part of the the the, the uh, Asian diaspora. How about that? Um, anyway, so they make a big deal about saying Lynette is Andrew's cousin. That's her cousin, and he's also her accountant too. Um, and I don't know as a as a way to kind of make brown her up a little bit. I don't really know why they go out of their way to do that. Like, but they make a big deal of saying this is my cousin. Anyway, or at least remarking that her her family tree got brown people in it. I don't, I don't really know what the point of them saying all of that was, but they made a big deal saying that um, Andrew was her cousin. And then we're introduced to Jacqueline. I don't see her last name on this thing, but anyway, Jacqueline, who's played by Emma McKay, who is the best friend of Lynette's. And I'm saying this in air quotes for a reason you'll understand it a little bit later. But she was betrothed to Simon Doyle. They had a whirlwind romance and she mysteriously, just for, no, just be, maybe because Lynette was her bestie. She introduces Simon to her because she just wants her blessing. They're going to get married. And when at the introduction, of course, they're in this club where this black woman is being super sexual on stage, remember? Salome. Salome. I don't know how they say her name in the movie, but Salome. I'm going to just call her Salome. Anyway, um, it's not Sloane. No, it's Salome. Anyway, um... So she's on the stage and she's moving and grooving. She's being extra sexy because she's a beautiful woman. And then she's singing in this deep, this deep kind of wine, steak and potato, red wine, steak and potato voice, real deep and throaty. And anyway, that's sexy too. And so she on there singing and doing the blues and stuff. And then all these white people are doing this dancing all nasty and stuff. And so Simon and um, Jacqueline are doing nasty dance on the, um, 
<laughs> on the, <laughs> I sound so old, but they're doing a nasty dance on the, um, on the stage, you know, on the dance floor, listening to this black woman do a nasty song, and Gal Gadot is drooling, apparently, excuse me, Lynette, Lynette is drooling at the table, watching them, and then, um, Poirot was over there watching, too, he got his eyes wide open, and you're like, Poirot, why are you, why are you here? Why are you out here, you know, looking, being a creep? Um, but then, you know, you, you cannot forget Hercule Poirot is a detective. So you can never lose sight on the reason why he's always g- gawking. Now, you know, you can still be a creep and also be working too. You know what I mean? But like, he's just watching. And anyway, so he's watching. We see Hercule Poirot and pause. Let me, let me just say this. We, excuse me. We learned that the reason why Hercule Poirot wears a mustache a two-tiered mustache is because he got a severe injury, a facial injury in the war, World War II, um, when his, he saved his battalion from um, being massacred by the Germans, but does not save his battalion, does not save his captain from a huge explosion, a tripwire explosion that take, not only takes his captain's life, but uh, severely scars his face. And so his wife or his love of his life convinces him to grow a mustache. And so that's why he has this fantastic mustache that we see him with um, when we're introduced to him later. That's why Poirot has this fantastic mustache. And I don't even know if that's part of his backstory, but maybe it is because Agatha probably put it in there. But anyhow, um, so so he's out there with this two-tiered mustache, by the way. Kenneth Branagh has blonde hair in this movie, not dark brown. And I don't know how I feel about that because I told you Poirot was a little Frenchman. I saw him as a little Frenchman, even though he's Belgian. Um, And he had dark hair. And I love that he had dark hair because that added to the appeal. And you got this man with a blonde mustache. I don't know. Something about that don't sit right with me, but I I keep it moving. Because Kenneth Branagh, as far as I can tell, his accent is he do a decent job with his accent. So anyway, but so back to the, the club where they're playing this, the black woman is playing this sexy time music and these white people are uh, dancing sexily on the, on the dance floor. And, and Army, it's really kind of cringy if I'm honest with you. Army, uh, excuse me, Simon and Jacqueline dancing feels, once again, you got black music in here, but the only black people that are in it are the ones that are singing the music, not dancing to it. Um, which is a theme, a running theme. How are you going to be in, <laughs> they're literally in the continent of Africa. I know a lot of people don't want to say that Egypt is an, a part of the African continent, but it is. It's, that's black people. That's the African diaspora, boo-boo. So you mean to tell me you in, are in on the continent of Africa and the only black people you mean to tell me can't no, can't no brown, ain't no brown rich people? Or are you trying to say that uh, Lynette is brown and so she's the representation of brown rich people? Because I'm not buying it. The actress is Israeli. She's not brown. She's Israeli. Last time I... Anyway, so like two different... You know what I mean? Like not a part of the Afri- African diaspora. So you mean to tell me that in the 40s there were no rich black people in the diaspora, on the continent of Africa and Egypt. You trying to tell me that? Because that's what I'm seeing here. Only people that, that were, uh, even, even, um, even Rosalie and 
Salome are, they're not rich. They're getting money from rich people. So anyway, that just didn't sit right with me. And then, yeah, so maybe there were some brown people dancing on the floor. I couldn't tell because the focus was, was Simon and Lynette and other white people on the stage and on the, on the um, floor. And then somehow or another in this weird, you could tell something happens in the beginning. There's this weird exchange where Jacqueline wants Lynette to dance with her fiance, you know, and Simon is give, making eyes at Lynette in front of his fiance, which feels foul to me, but whatever, people can be foul. So they go on the dance floor and then they proceed to do the perform the raunchiest dance with each other. And how you go dance sexily with your fiance's best friend. And so, and then no surprise, Poirot is sitting there back off in the cud watching him. And you're like, what? And blah, 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 blah. This is the introduction in the, in the movie. This is the like first quarter of the movie is about this. And then surprise, surprise, boop. Lynette and Simon pop up and now they're on their honeymoon. They're back in Egypt and they're on their honeymoon and they're gonna, they've been married. Um, and everybody's there, including the former best friend, Jacqueline, who is now stalking them apparently and Simon is nasty to her and Lynette is nasty to her or what have you. At first they try to ignore her but then you know they can't ignore her and she just makes herself a nuisance and blah to the blue blue blue. What else do I want to say? So let's let's tell you so let's talk. So how they get to the Nile is Lynette is super rich. So they're embarking on their honeymoon following the the ceremony where Jacqueline shows up unannounced or uninvited. Um, Poirot is there and Book is there and Euphemia is there, his mother, um, because they are friends of Lynette who has invited Poirot to come and investigate Jacqueline to make sure she's cool. You know what I mean? To make sure she doesn't do anything wild or dangerous um, because she's still jealous. And anyway, so, you know, he's trying to say, you know what, what Poirot initially says, you know what, you want her to leave y'all alone? Why don't y'all just cut this honeymoon short and go home and have your honeymoon at home behind closed doors where Rosalie, um, not Rosalie, but, um, Jacqueline can't, can't get, get you there. And then Simon is like, yeah, you're right. By the way, Simon is penniless. Simon do not have any money. He just has good looks. That's it. And Lynette is like, I don't care. I want my boo. And she, come on. That's always a dangerous combination. But anyway, well, men do it all the time. So whatever. Why can't she marry pretty? Um, but with no money. Cause she got the money anyway. Um, so Jacqueline is making a nuisance of herself and she and all of these people are there, including um, Sa- Salome and Rosalie, who, again, Rosalie is the manager for Salome, who's actually her godmother. Like, her surrogate mother is, is what pa- Poirot calls her. Um, and anyway, um, they've been invited to Lynette and Simon's nuptials because that's how L- Lynette met Simon, dancing nastily, to Salome's music. So of course we should get Salome, you know, we should get Salome there. 
And of course, Rosalie is going to tag along because that's her surrogate daughter, but then that's also her manager. So anyway, and then Book and Euphemia are there because they're friends of Lynette. Um, And then again, what we come to learn is that secretly, Book and Rosalie are in love. Um, And, but Euphemia forbades the relationship but of course it's not because she's black she's a black woman but because she's american and um because she's strong-willed and she doesn't come from the european or english city that they come from or whatever and they're very snobby about that but it's not about race it's absolutely not about race okay girl anyway um we're talking about the 40s anyway um but so there's that storyline and russell brand sorry Dr. Ludwig goes because I'm not 100% sure why he was invited. Why in the world would you invite your former fiance to the nuptials with you and another one and, and, and somebody else? Like, feels cruel, but Dr. Ludwig was in love with her. So still, because what, we're com- what we come to learn is that this was supposed to be a whirlwind short affair where Simon snatched her from Dr. Ludwig. Um, and so anyway, but he comes, he comes on the trip because he's a glutton for punishment, I guess. Um, and Ali Fazel is there because that's family, Lynette's family. Um, and then there's one other person that I want to bring up, which is Ro- uh, Louise Bourget, who is probably Belgian too, but she speaks French, um, who's plays by Rose Leslie, who's married to Kit Harrington, the fine short king. Anyway, um, but she's in there playing a French woman. Um, and yeah, she's like not a maid. She's like a, I forgot what her title is, but like she does a lot of the administrative work for um, the rich Lynette. Anyway, so. So yeah, so um, there are some other people in here, but that's the only that's those are the only people I want to talk about. Um, yeah, so let's talk about how they get on the Nile. They get on the Nile because they're trying to get away from Jacqueline, who's being weird at this point. She's stalking them and showing up everywhere that they 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 turn. So so uh, Lynette is like, okay, I, I'd go. I got something for you. We finna get on the boat. And you can't get on this boat. It's a private booking. And so she books a boat and they get on the Nile. And then here starts the real story. And so they're going down the Nile and they're seeing different um, scenery. They're seeing different things happening. Um, And they stop for a moment and they go see this tomb of Pharaoh's wives. And, you know, in the process of going through, you know, learning more about the, you know, the the plot, we also learn more about Egyptian history or a little bit about Egyptian history and as a way to advance the plot. And so blah, blah, blah. Long story short, we, they get back on the boat and there's a, there's a moment where Lynette and Simon almost fall off of a cliff, which I thought was weird, but whatever. Um, then there's another moment where we're reminded that Book and Rosalie are deeply in love and Euphemia forbid, forbid, forbids it. And 
but they're going to, but Book is going to define his rich mama and be penniless and have no money, but like be with Lynette or Rosalie because he loves her Um, and she loves him and they're going to make it work. And that's really a red herring for us to miss the other pieces here, which is Lynette is in danger and we don't exactly know why. We think it's because of uh, Jacqueline. But we come to know she's in a little bit of a danger for a number of different reasons. And so anyway, this um, so this is the part where we come to the murder mystery. So we get back on the boat and then we come to surprise, surprise. Here comes Jacqueline's nosy meddling behind. And Lynette is furious because how in the heck did this heifer get on my boat? And it doesn't matter. She bought a ticket way in advance and they can't put her off the boat because she paid for her home ticket. So, of course, Jacqueline makes quick order of waste no time in making herself a nuisance to Simon and Lynette. And there is a scene that happens um, where it's at night. It's like one o'clock in the morning at this point. They've been up drinking and they're in this parlor and it's Lynette and Simon couple of ways whispering sweet nothings in each other's ear and then it's ja- uh, it's uh, Rosalie and Book who are whispering sweet nothings into each other's ear and then it's oh uh, miserable Jacqueline who's sitting at the bar trying to get the bartender to serve her and there's this dust up that happens where Simon and um, Jacqueline get to arguing and he says I never loved you and she's like you didn't mean that you're talking about and Lynette is like Boo-boo, I'm a little tired. Me and Simon have been going at it like rabbits tonight, and I need to go get my rest. And so they rub it in Jacqueline's face, and of course she's firecracker mad. Um, or what's daddy say? Firecracker red. Or she's hotter than a firecracker, whatever. I missed the euphemism. Anyway, um, and so, so Lynette goes off to bed. Simon is drunk, and he starts to fight with Jacqueline. Jacqueline pulls a gun and accidentally shoots. Well, not accidentally. She shoots um, Simon in the leg. And, you know, um, immediately Rosalie and Book um, spring to action, I guess. They um, start helping Simon and and trying to detain um, Jacqueline, who swears up and down, she didn't mean to shoot him, she didn't mean it, she didn't mean it. Anyway, so they in- instantly separate the two, and they go get Dr., uh, what's, what's, what's Russell Brand's, Dr. Ludwig, who ends up treating um, Simon for his bullet wound in his cabin. So they all go back to their separate cabins. And about... You know, so everybody's drunk. Even Poirot has been gone to bed because he had one glass of champagne, but I guess he doesn't have a, ch- a head for champagne anymore because he passes clean out um, in his bed. And he doesn't hear any of the ruckus because he's passed the heck out. Anyway, so, so yeah, so Poirot goes to bed. He wakes up to a scream. It's, um, it's uh, Louise screaming when she sees um, Lynette dead in her bed with a gunshot wound to her temple. And so goes the mystery of who in the heck killed Lynette. 
It could only be a few people on this isolated boat. Is, is it the servants or is it the many people who are on this boat that have a reason to um, end her life? And the suspects end up being Simon, Euphemia, Book, Rosalie, Ludwig, of course, Andrew, her cousin, Jacqueline, of course, not Salome, and I'll put a pin in that, Louise, though, becomes, um, and Louise becomes suspects. Even though Louise was the one that found her, she instantly is suspect because she's like, she entreats you, um, you know, for, for different reasons. Uh, Louise becomes a suspect because Lynette ruined her, uh, ruined her engagement. Um, Andrew becomes a suspect because she's cheated him out of money or he feels slighted by her because she had all this wealth and she didn't share it. Ludwig is a suspect, obviously, because he's, he was the former fiance that was jilted. Rosalie is a suspect a little bit because, you know, maybe she's just money hungry. Um, but she quickly stops being a suspect. Book initially is questioned because they thought he, he like did something, but you know, that quickly goes away. Euphemia was, was interviewed, but like that goes nowhere. And then Simon was interviewed too, even though he's the husband. What you need to know is at some point, unfortunately, well, actually other people die in this movie too, but I'll let you watch the thing to learn who dies. But Lynette isn't the only person that dies. Two other people die here. Um, and what we learn is the murderer kills the other two people to come to cover up the initial murder of Lynette. And the way we get there is pretty cool. But the one thing I do want to say is Salome becomes, in a weird way, the love interest, a love interest of Poirot. And I confess, I have not read the Agatha Christie novels about that include the detective Poirot. So I don't know if he has a black woman love interest who is a blues singer or not. Um, But what we know is at the end of the film, like throughout the film, he... As eloquent as Poirot is, he is very ineloquent when he tries to talk to Salome. And Salome gives you the impression that she's she's a little bit sweet on Poirot um, because of his charisma, even though he has no charisma when he's talking to her. Anyhow, um, so there's a little bit of flirtation throughout the film and he stutters when he tries to speak with her, but he just can't get the words out. This is a very eloquent person. Um, and so at the end of the film, you think that, you know, they kind of part ways in this weird way where the, the boat docks and everybody who's left gets off the boat, including the the servants. And they have this little moment where she tries to talk to him and she does talk to him and he tries to speak with her, but he can't get the words out, um, for myriad reasons. And you're led to believe it's because she's, he's just struck by her beauty. Um, and he can't quite be his charming self around her. Um, because we've got so many emotions and feelings about her. But at the very end of the film, we see Salome singing like she do in the club, being all sexy and in her beautiful gown and stuff like that. I think she's in a blue, like a sapphire dress. Anyway, she looks gorgeous. The actress looks gorgeous playing Salome. Anyway, and then you see Poirot, who has now shaved off his mustache, and you see the scars on his face, but he is sitting in this club, watching Salome um, and you, you get the sense that either he's just 
with Salome, he's watching Salome or he's on the job. Maybe you don't get the sense that he's on the job, but you get the sense that he's trying to be his full self, his real self for Salome, for a budding relationship. I guess that's the assumption we're supposed to make. And the significance of him shaving his beard is throughout this whole film. Remember, I told you his wife um, after the accident told him to grow a mustache. And what we learn is that very shortly after the war, his wife dies. She dies. The, the love of his life dies. And then he throws himself into becoming this character that is Poirot, the famous detective, with this impressive double-tiered mustache. And, you know, throughout the, the film, like, two more people die behind, after Lynette, and people are blaming him. People, people begin to, to blame him like you're supposed to be this world-renowned detective. How come you haven't figured out who is killing folks? And one little note, Book is something like a surrogate son to um, a surrogate son to Poirot, and something happens to him, and you know, people are even more furious that why haven't you solved who killed Lynette? What is happening here? And so, and they're, and again, they keep questioning, oh, you're supposed to be this world famous, you're supposed to be this super famous um, detective, but like you're really not doing the trick, like what's, what's happening here? And he begins to question this persona that he's, he's, he's gathered. And one more note about his exchange with Salome, at the end when everybody who's left gets off of the boat, in that exchange, she's like, I wish you would not have been a detective, or I wish you would not have tried to solve this thing. It kind of, or not this thing, but like, I wish you weren't trying to be, I wish you weren't so clever. Because you get the sense that that kind of ruined a lot of things. In your arrogance to being the cleverest detective in the world, you missed a lot of things. And in missing those things, people died because you missed these things. And I think that's another reason why he just did not have the right words for her. Um, also, he also, he mentioned that he was running away from love because he was so hurt behind the loss of his love of his life that told him to grow the mustache. And so when we see Poirot at the end of the film, he has no mustache and he's just sitting there vying after, um, Salome, you get the sense that he's not the detective, he's not a detective anymore. Or maybe he's shed that detective persona and he's just a man waiting to be with someone that he's not scared to love. And so anyway, so it ends kind of on a beautiful note. I will say this. There's a lot of things that I find cringy, mostly the fact that there are so many black and brown people that are in this film or the African diaspora that are in this film. And yet none of them are the leads. They're supporting. No leads here. Like, nope. Which is frustrating because how you gonna have a diverse cast and still not put people in like, the lead characters like it's literally fiction you could do whatever you want you literally could do whatever you want you can have part to be honest with you why does Poirot need to be white you can be Belgian and not be white like that uh, that do happen there are black Scottish people you know what I mean I don't know why I said that I think it I, I find it fascinating because I'm like at the end of the day we are everywhere we are in there are black Asian people there are Blasian people that aren't Tiger Woods who was just being weird about it, like no legit grew up in, in an Asian country. 
have uh, raised in an Asian country, in Asia, around uh, Japanese culture or Chinese culture, Korean culture, are a part of Korean culture and are a part of the African diaspora too. Like you can be from Belgium and still be a part of the African diaspora. The two things can be true at once. So why do Poirot, Poirot need to be? Well, I guess there were no black Belgian soldiers, which I find ironic. Well, not ironic, I find it hard to believe because black people are everywhere. But anyway, um, but yeah, like we could have did more than what we did do. Um, in this film, but whatever. The story itself is interesting. The mystery itself is interesting because that's Agatha for you. She, she wrote a lot of great mysteries. Um, and the film adaptation, I will say, Kenneth Brada did a good job in producing this, and whoever the cinematographer was did an even better job because the colors, baby, the colors, gorgeous, magnifique. They're beautiful, I thought. Um, the contrast and the, bra- the warm tones, like you got the sense that it was warm without people being too sweaty, you got the sense that it's just super colorful and beautiful the way that you think that an African country would be. You know what I mean? Like lots of colors juxtaposed beige uh, against beige backgrounds or lush greens. You still have lush color. You know what I mean? Like what you expect or what I would expect. Um, anyway, so the, the movie is interesting. But I'm curious to, to hear the commentary beyond what people think about Army, Letitia, and even Gal, um, to a certain extent. Although, it's not that I'm excusing her wanting to play Cleopatra. I just think she's got a... Dis- I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave that there. I'll leave other people to discuss that. But, um, yeah, I just think... I, I think the film is interesting. I, I'm actually wanting to go watch other Poirot episodes now from Masterpiece Theater... Because now I want to see what these mysteries end up being like. I want to see like what I want to see a full version of an episode because I missed out on that when I was younger because it was just over my head. But I think I'm ready for it now. Anyway, but that's the movie. Um, I do encourage you to watch it. It is interesting, even though it's cringy in parts. Again, that opening scene, not the opening scene. The opening scene is um, with Poirot in the battlefield. But the second major scene in the film early where they're dancing is cringy. I don't know, you watching, you tell me if it's cringy. It felt cringe, cringe, cringe to me. Anyway, um, but that's it for now. I've talked enough. This is a long episode or longer than the last couple. So anyway, I'm gonna leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Look forward to hearing from you, leaving a voice message if I've got anything wrong or could think about, could think about uh, something a little bit differently. I look forward to hearing that. If you want to leave a message, uh, like write a review on my um, page on the Purple app, you're welcome to do that. Talking about um, uh, iTunes, no, um, the Apple, the podcast app, whatever, you know, any podcast app, just leave it there. Um, five stars or, or four or five stars, whatever your pleasure. Leave a positive review. If you leave a negative one, I won't read it and it don't matter. Um, but yeah, just you rating this thing and reviewing it helps spread the, the reach of this show. So sharing this, if you don't feel like making a, leaving a message or, you know, doing any rating it, just share this episode with somebody that you think might get it. Uh, especially somebody that's, that's nostalgic about fairs and festivals, like festivals, music fest and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it might be interesting to them, but thank you in advance for helping me to continue to do this thing that I enjoy doing. All right, that's it for now. Take care of yourself. It is springtime. This weather is funky, but, you know, 
you every day is another day for you to do something awesome or you know what for you to just exist and be okay and that's fine too so find the joy in the little things be kind to yourself until next time take care <laughs>